Thank you for joining us on the Sword and Trial today. Uh, today, Graham and I have the privilege of having a conversation with Dr. Joe Rigney. Uh, you probably have heard of him because of his recent announcement that he is leaving Bethlehem College and Seminary, where he's been the president for the last couple of years. But Joe has written on public theological issues and some on political philosophy as well. And uh, it, it's just a, a wonderful conversation that we had. I mean, he... he addresses key issues that all Christians living in Western civilization in 2023 must think about. And if you don't think about them well, you will think about them poorly to your detriment and the detriment of those that you're trying to serve in the name of Christ. So I encourage you to listen to this, learn. If uh, you like the podcast, please share it. We think this one will be very beneficial to a lot of Christian leaders throughout the United States and beyond. Welcome to The Sword and Trowel. The Sword and Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. We're delighted to have you join us today because we have with us on uh, via Skype coming into the studio, Joe Rigney, all the way from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, if you are familiar with Dr. Rigney, you know that he has been very thoughtful in the world of how Christians should engage themselves in culture and in the political realm. And we want to talk to him about that today. So, Dr. Rigney, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really delighted to be here. Listen, we would love to uh, just have you introduce yourself a little bit to the folks that uh, listen to the Sword and Trial. So, tell us about your background. You know, how uh, w- when you came to Christ and uh, your yeah. educational track and the the things that have led you to the theological concerns and interests you have today. Yeah, uh, so I grew up in a Christian household in uh, West Texas. Uh, I grew up in Midland, and uh, my family, when I was about seven or eight, uh, shifted churches. We'd been in a, a Presbyterian church, um, the, uh, you know, since I was a baby. And uh, but then at some point, our pastor left, and so my my parents moved to First Baptist Church there across town, and uh, was where they really began to grow in their faith. Um, I think my dad actually was saved uh, through there. We, he and I were actually baptized at the same. Uh, in the same ceremony when I was about 12. Um, but they got involved in a Sunday school class. And so that really was a, a marked shift in our kind of the Christian culture of our home. Uh, and, uh, and so I grew up in church uh, and uh, was saved when I was about 12. Um, and, uh, and then was a, you know, youth group kid and, and uh, did some Christian camps and, you know, played high school football and that kind of thing in West Texas. You were in Midland, uh, you, you played at Midland? I did, Dylan High, yep. yeah. Yeah, okay. That, you know, those were some probably yeah. pretty good days back there for you guys. That's right. Well, Friday Night Lights. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I was, um, I had the uh, the privilege when I was in eighth grade to try to tackle Cedric Benson, if you remember that name. <laughs> I do remember that name. I went to A&M. <laughs> and, uh, Actually, the word try. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what happened, so, how that ended. So First Baptist Midland, who was your pastor during those years? Uh, you know, that's a good, I think it was Gary Dyer. Okay, uh, yeah. with, I think he was the pastor for, for a bunch of it. And then when I was about ninth grade, the, the, the church that had the most impact, when I was in ninth grade, uh, First Baptist planted a church across town called Stonegate. Mm. And, uh, so Patrick Payton uh, was the pastor there, and he sort of mentored and discipled me through, uh, through high school. He eventually actually became the mayor of Midland oh. uh, for, uh, in recent years. Uh, but he, you know, grew Stonegate, which is a really unusual kind of combination. On the one hand, um, he was very influenced kind of by the Willow Creek model, mm-hmm. but 
very, he had gone to Southern and, you know, studied under Danny Aiken. It was one of his favorite professors and it really got into Piper. Okay. So on the one hand, you had preaching that was, um, you know, had this sort of God centeredness flavor, mm-hmm. but in a church structure that was much more akin to Saddleback, Willow Creek type. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think so. It was a really unusual conversation. I didn't know that, you know, yeah. going up there, I didn't realize how unusual that was. I'm just thinking, <laughs> Yeah, but it, now I go. Wow, I don't know how that worked, but it, but it did. So. And, and so, wait a minute. I want to make sure I understand this right. So that that was a Southern Baptist church. It was okay. It so was. so I'm going to add you to the list of Southern Baptists who got away. Because, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, at this point, at this point, I, I will say the uh, at this point, you know, working with my elders, the baptism question is an open question. So I wouldn't even say that it's been a full. Sh- it's it's not a full shift yet. We're still working through it. But it it, it, it the the issues rose to the level of this isn't just sixty forty. Uh, yeah. This is more like 50 50 and we're still still working through it okay so what did you do after high school uh i went to a uh, texas a&m uh and uh did you and, say texas a&m yeah. when, were you, when were you there <laughs> oh no uh <laughs> one to oh five okay we just changed the whole theme of this podcast okay so oh one to oh five no i graduated in 79 okay uh, that's close uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah right yeah so yeah. Uh, what's what church did you go to when you were there I went to Living Hope. I went to Grace uh, Bible uh-huh. for a year or so. I was actually there. Uh, so I was there with, with, with Dwight Edwards. Yeah. Um, it was the, before he had his uh, failure. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was there for about a year or so. And, uh, and then the sort of the lordship controversy stuff kind of bubbled up around yeah. then again, I guess, in 2002. Right. And I realized, well, I wasn't whatever that was. I, I, I was on the lordship side of the yeah. things yeah. and, uh, and realized that that's not what I was. And so I shifted to uh, Living Hope Baptist Church. Uh, Butch Smith was the pastor uh, then, and it was a smaller Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I met my wife. Uh, mm-hmm. She was uh, very involved there, and I got really involved in in uh, in that church in the college ministry, and and then also was involved in some campus organizations, Brotherhood of Christian Aggies, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Wonderful! Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, my wife and I met at A and M as well, and yeah. we were married at Central Baptist Church uh, back yeah. before it was as large as it is now. And I actually pastored right outside of College Station at Rock Prairie Baptist Church, which probably was inside yeah. College Station when you got there. Because everything that's right. going out that way. So, uh, well, that's fascinating. So, yeah, man. Connections. Yeah. So, uh, when did you sense the Lord directing you uh, to your vocation as a gospel yeah. minister? Yeah. So, I, sometime whenever I was at, uh, when I was at AM, I started looking into, uh, listening to and reading Piper. Um, somebody get, recommended it to me, and, I, and I, I date myself by saying I was downloading Piper sermons off of Napster. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Napster. You don't have a clue. I remember you don't have Napster, a clue yeah. about Napster. Yeah, do you? so I was. I, that, that was my that was my thing in my freshman dorm room, and uh, and so that was kind of one of the things I had had. Also, kind of a spiritual awakening when I was a senior in high school, um, that kind of primed that pump. And then and then it was you know listening to Piper that I said I, I really want to preach the word, mm. um, and so felt the call to ministry. And so then. Uh, I, uh, I would, I came into Bethlehem for a conference, I think in like 2003, uh, the Jonathan Edwards conference, their first desiring God national Mm -hmm. conference. So I came up for that and, and, uh, had a friend, uh, who, uh, actually got to my high school a few years older than me, who had come up to the Bethlehem Institute. His name's Chris Lent. He's a, he's now a pastor in, in Orlando. And, um, so, uh, stayed with Chris and got to, got to hear about the Bethlehem Institute and said, that's where I want to go to school. And so whenever it came time to, I was getting ready to graduate, I applied there and, and, uh, and they, they accepted me. And so then my wife and I had, had met, started dating my final semester. And so I actually moved up here 
in August of 2005 and then went back in September and got married in October. And then we honeymooned all the way up. Uh, so my first semester of, uh, of seminary was very eventful, um, <laughs> trying, to, trying to keep up with my Greek, my Greek verbs while on a honeymoon. Uh, <laughs> do, do not recommend. Uh, how romantic. So, yeah, how romantic, right? Uh, and so, yeah, so that's, that was kind of the, the call was, was, uh, you know, listening to both my pastor back in, in Midland, uh, Patrick, uh, and then Piper were kind of two influential people mm-hmm. that, that led to that call. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you did the Institute and graduated yeah. from there. What came next? So then, uh, yeah, I did the two, two, it was a two year Institute at the time. And, uh, then toward the tail end, they were wanting to, uh, expand, um, and, and started to kind of college stuff. So they were going to do, they were doing a one year, um, kind of gap year Christian worldview program. And I was asked to help teach in that. Mm-hmm. And I had really come to love the classroom during my time in seminary. I'd been thinking church planting, pastoring, um, but then, uh, really enjoyed the classroom. And so I said, yes, I'd love to try this. And so that kind of got me in the door um, to start building what's now Bethlehem college. And, uh, and so I started doing that. I was also teaching a little bit in the seminary. And then within a two, two years or so of, of that endeavor, the decision was made to, hey, we want to actually have a, um, a full college and a full seminary. And so in 2009, we launched as a full degree granting institution. And so since then, I've just been, I've been teaching here. So I, I kind of got the job and then had to kind of retrofit the education. So after uh, I got a, you know, a master's from uh, an MA from Bethlehem, and then I went and got a master's uh, in classical Christian studies from New St. Andrews that did a distance program because I was being asked uh, and enjoying teaching great, great books. So I was teaching Shakespeare and mm-hmm. Plato and Milton and Austin and stuff like that. And so I went out and said, I need to get more study here. So I went and got a second master's in that and then did a Ph.D., um, at the University of Chester through Union School of Theology, which is where Mike, Michael Reeves is the mm-hmm. president there. And he was my doctoral supervisor. Uh, and I studied um, Jonathan Edwards' Doctrine of God's Attributes. Mm. So um, so that was, my, that was my dissertation, which I finished, I think, 2018 is my recollection, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, so it's been relatively recent. I'm not, uh, I've, it was, you know, not, not too many years ago. I was still, I was in school until I was way, way after you should be in school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think we probably have some mutual friends along that journey, you know, trying right. to find the timeline. So mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Well, man, um, you know, we've uh, I, probably the way some of the folks that would follow Founders Ministries uh, first heard of you would have been about the time you started uh, talking about empathy and uh, sat down on man rampant with Doug Wilson to say yep. that we shouldn't empathize. Uh, yeah. So what do you have against empathy? Man? <laughs> what a mean, what a mean <laughs> thing to say. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, that was birthed out of just kind of observations. Was, uh, one place was uh, there's a book by a non-Christian guy named Edwin Friedman, who had sort of, I had read his leadership book and uh, noted how empathy kind of is this unadulterated good that everybody thinks is the key to leadership. And he was sort of challenging that and saying, actually, it's far more important that you have clarity, vision, um, you know, sort of sober mindedness is the biblical word I'd use for it. And that's more important. And then that, that gives you the freedom to be uh, empathetic or to care in appropriate ways, because you're actually tethered to something more substantive than just your, your feelings or the feelings of others. And that empathy is often a power tool. Um, It's a, it's a, it can be a tool of of manipulation. You can, Mm -hmm. something people can play on. So I, I read that and, and then I just started noticing that everywhere. And, uh, and so that led for me to kind of, I was talking about it with friends here, um, and observing it in certain contexts in the church and outside the church. 
And at one point somebody said, have you ever written anything kind of the, the Christian version of that book that you were always mm-hmm. talking about? And I said, no, I haven't. I should do that. And so then I, I started, uh, I guess the order was I, I was um, asked to come out and do a, a talk out there in, in Moscow and uh, first a, a youth conference. And then, uh, and while they tacked on the man rampant thing, they said, Hey, we're going to try this new, this new, uh, uh, interview program thing. Mm-hmm. You want to be the guinea pig? And I said, sure, let's talk about the <laughs> sin of empathy. And uh, they said, great. So that was kind of where it came from, was just seeing the way that um, people were often being asked and, and willing to sort of jump in with both feet in a way that untethered them from what's true, what's real, what's good, and and letting feeling sort of drive the show. So the way, you know, so untethered empathy is sort of, we eventually got to, that's probably the clearest phrase for what what I'm concerned mm. about in that whole discussion is um, it's not, it's, it, should we care? Absolutely. Should we be, should we suffer with, should we weep with those who weep all biblical obligations, but always done sort of anchored in, rooted in, grounded in who God is, who yeah. Jesus is, what reality is. And so when you're grounded, then you can, from that grounding, love, care, suffer, sympathize, have compassion, even empathize. If we want to use that word, I'm, I don't get hung up on the words. Um, but that's the important thing is being tethered to something so that you're not just blown about by your, your feelings or other people's feelings. Yeah. yeah when I, um, read some of your stuff on that, um, I was struck by how pastoral it is. And so I'd recommend for any of our listeners who are pastors or elders, um, just to, to look into it, to read some of it, cause it can be very helpful in dealing with and helping people who are going through the very difficult times and learning how to tether yourself to uh, reality and truth and try to pull people out of the mire mm-hmm. rather than getting in the mire with them and sinking with them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because perspective gets lost whenever you're overwhelmed like that. And if uh, the demand is you've got to, you, you do not care for me unless you come in and share my perspective, mm-hmm. then there's no hope. <laughs> there's no right. hope. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Well, I think if people Googled Joe Rigney, today that uh, they would find Christian nationalist uh, next yeah, to your name more often than not. So uh, are you a Christian nationalist? Uh, you know, it's a funny thing. I, uh, I've never used that, that term to describe myself. I, I know why, you know, in all of the um, press releases about my resignation at Bethlehem and my move to, uh, coming move to, to Moscow, to New St. Andrews, I know why that term gets applied. And so I'm not going to run away from it. Uh, because I think that there are ways in which it can be used. It's obviously a very contested and confusing term to many, um, but I think it's important for Christians to not let the let those who are trying to manipulate us manipulate us by labels. Mm. Um, instead, the, the far more important thing is be clear about what you think, be clear about what you're advocating for, what your principles are, and then um, I mean even even the term Christian, quite frankly, um, you know, was a term that was initially applied to the church, not one that the church said, Hey, this is what we are. It was at Antioch. They were first called Christians, presumably by, Oh, that group, that, mm-hmm. that new sect. And, uh, and so the, the world's going to call us all sorts of names and we should, um, we shouldn't be manipulated by them. So, so not, not a self-designation, but not one I'd run away from. So what, what do you think is going on in, uh, the way this term is being used? Yeah, I, I think that a, a big part of the, the present discussion is basically um, for hundreds of years, both in America and in the West in general, we've had a, a broad sort of um, consensus about social order. And I would say in the last uh, 70 years, post-World War II, uh, but really accelerating in the last you know 
20 or so, um, that sort of social order, all of the assumptions under it have just finally really unraveled. And it's now um, not just open season. I'd say there was a period I'm, I'm attracted to Aaron Wren's three worlds thesis about positive world, neutral world, negative world. If your listeners are familiar with that, but that sort of positive world was still sort of the last vestiges of a, an older Christendom, a Christian social order. And the neutral world was the the time in which it's really contested. And that really, I think, be really ended at some level in the West, um, or at least in America, in 2014, 2015. And Obergefell was kind of that last straw that kind of unleashed. There, there's now a different mm. establishment. Mm. And I think that we should recognize that, that, that right now we live um, in, in a, at various degrees and in various ways of, of, of thickness across the country, um, a, a secular godless, um, a, uh, a, a rainbow establishment, if nothing else. Mm. And, uh, and so that's the, the, the laws are informed by all of those sort of things. So, so we live under an establishment and I think what that's done to Christians is, whoa, this feels different. This isn't what we're used to. And so now we're sort of having to re-engage the sort of foundations of social order. What, what does it mean? What is a nation? Um, what is a family? How does the church relate to them? Um, how does culture shape? And so all of those questions are open in a, in a new way, in a different way, in a, in a felt way. And so I think people are trying to sort of sort through that and with various labels being sort of used to, to describe it, whether it's Christian nationalism by some or um, mere Christendom by others or um, the, the, you know, whatever, whatever terms get thrown about, I, I've tended to call myself just a classical Protestant. Mm-hmm. I think there's riches of, in the Protestant tradition for thinking through social order. There's some great stuff uh, there. And so I'm, I'm really drawn to, to that stream of the Christian tradition as a, as a self-designation. Um, but that's, that's the, the cause is everything seems up for, up for grabs or even we're underneath a different kind, a fundamentally different kind of, of uh, establishment. And we're sort of sorting through what does that mean and what should we be af- actually wanting? What's, what should we be aiming at? Right. Uh, and Christian nationalism is just one label and, and way of expressing that within which then there's lots of variations from uh, stuff that's kooky and crazy <laughs> Um, to stuff that's just basically mainstream Protestant thought. Now you, um, thinking of yourself as a classical Protestant, obviously there's a lot of things that uh, go along with that, but you're speaking specifically of cultural and political thought. Now what would distinguish yeah. a classical Protestant, which I think most people, would, most Protestants would want to say, yeah, I'm a yeah, classical I, Protestant. I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> Am I? Um, so when it comes to cultural and political thought, how would you distinguish maybe a more mainstream understanding of politics and public theology today from classic Protestantism? Yeah, I think that uh, when, when I've, I think one of the main questions is to what degree should uh, the state um, recognize and formally acknowledge God and Christ? So um, oftentimes this gets cashed out in terms of whether or not you think the state has jurisdiction over what's commonly called the first table of the law. So mm. if we take if we take the Ten Commandments as sort of a shorthand summary of natural law with some ceremonial elements woven in there too, but if, if those ten are this is what we ought to know by nature and that what God then clarified and revealed in His Word, um, and then we divide that into the two tables, sort of the first four commandments dealing with the vertical stuff and then the the last six really dealing with the horizontal stuff um human to human um concerns and the question is what jurisdiction does the state have over the first the first four and uh and i think classical protestantism has always said um the state does have a role to play in promoting and encouraging true religion 
um, and, and encouraging and promoting Christianity with all kinds of, with the details being left largely to prudence in particular circumstances. So the question of, do you have a tax supported church or not is one of wisdom and prudence um, in the classical tradition and not like a thou, you must have this in order to be biblical. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, but at the top level, it's should the state encourage and promote true religion, including the worship of God in various ways. So Sabbath laws, um, laws against blasphemy, um, you know, feast days, fast days, those, those sort of things. Does the state have a role in directing people, um, at some level teaching, teaching, and then, and then, uh, policing, enforcing. And I think the, the classical Protestants, magisterial Protestants have always said, yes, it does. And then the details are matters of prudence. Whereas I think many, um, modern Christians, evangelicals, uh, large numbers of Baptists, for example, uh, tend to be really uncomfortable with that, with that principle. They may agree, yes, the state should be enforcing the second table, you know, murder, theft, adultery, all of those things are in this jurisdiction of the state. But that first table stuff is not something that we, uh, we want the state involved in really at all. And I think that's a fundamental confusion and is really where I've tried to devote a bunch of my thinking and efforts when I've talked about it is, um, there are ways that you can do that the state can be engaged on the first table well and poorly, but that they should, I think is just a fundamental feature that they're deacons of God, ministers of God. The state um, is, is established by God and it ought to acknowledge him as the source of authority and then wisely uh, execute its powers. Yeah. It's a, it's almost a question of, of not um, whether they will or not. It's how they will and whether there's going to be a religious impulse in the state, it's which religion mm. it's going to yeah. be. Are you familiar with John Gill and uh, his statement about the magistrate has a responsibility to uh, enforce the first table of the law? Yeah, I've, you know, I've seen uh, some Gill quotes float around on Twitter every now and then and yeah. always always seem to like what I see. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, it makes me nervous. I mean, I, you know, I love Gill, but, um, uh, and I haven't sorted through all that as well, but one of the one of the things that, that I've come to is that the state cannot be neutral. It right. cannot be neutral. And whenever, with that kind of clarity, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, you know, wh- what does this mean and how do they engage? And I, I like the way you put it in terms of prudence, you know, wisdom, and there are all kind of maybe circumstances, I guess, that uh, could play into how that might look. Uh, so what do you think about um, the, the constitutional republic that was established in the the beginning of the United States. Are, is that something you think is wonderful? Yeah, I think I think that was a, a really uh, it was a it was a good, reasonable, fitting uh, system. So I and I think this is um, I think this is one thing that gets lost sometimes in the Christian nationalism discussion. At least for Christian critics will often criticize um, magisterial types for saying, mm-hmm. "Well, you that that seems un-American," but it actually isn't. I think I think America for its first hundred and seventy years of its existence was an application of Mm. magisterial Protestant principles. Mm. Uh, We had blasphemy laws, we had Sabbath laws. um, There was widespread recognition. Um, Even today, some of those things still linger. Many uh, legislators swear on the Bible. That's a form of establishment at some level. It's an acknowledgement of when you take your oath, you put your hand on the holy book and which book. Now, obviously there's been variation now. We have people swearing on on the Quran and other, other texts kind of have been brought in as we've, we've become polytheists. Um, but for most of our history, there were all sorts of ways where even America had a, uh, was a part of a, a mere Christendom sort of 
of system with wide toleration when it came to uh, religious freedom. And and so I think that America had had those principles, was established by those principles. The states had religious, many states had religious tests for public office at the founding. You had to believe the Bible. You had to, you had to affirm the Old and New Testaments. You had to be mm. Protestant in order to hold office in, in certain states. And that was all fine and good. It was at the federal level, they didn't want to have denominational fights. They didn't want to, they didn't want the Anglicans to impose Anglicanism on everybody or the Presbyterians on everybody. They wanted to leave the denominational question down downstream. Um, but so that's, and that's what the first amendment was, was attempting to do. So I think America is a good example of the kind of a kind of, um, expression of a, of a Christian polity, Christian people, and, uh, and, is, and is a good one. But at the same time, I don't think it's the only one. I think one of the, the things that sometimes happens in the discussion is as Americans, we can be so wedded to our good way of doing it mm-hmm. that we can have to think it's the only way to do it. And so there's a kind of academic discussion that, that can happen in the political philosophy where you're, you're really working on theory, philosophy, principles. And then there's the sort of um, the, the grind of practical politics. What are you, what are you after right now? Like what, what are, what's your, uh, your platform? What are you going for? And those are related, but they're not quite the same. And so there's things that I would say I would be after and want to go for now because I live an American. I live here. Um, and, and we are where we are. Um, but then the theoretical level, I can look at great Britain, for example, and think they have a religious establishment still of, of sorts, mm-hmm. and I could say that's a reasonable way to do it too, or or the way that that uh, the Netherlands were Holland was, um, you know, with with Kuyper the Dutch. So uh, you, you can you can look at I can look at a bunch of different arrangements. That's one of the things I like about Protestantism is it establishes certain things at a very principal level. And then gives that wisdom to say that's a good way to do it, and that's another good way to do it, and that works there, wouldn't work here, um, and it allows for that kind of the right kind of prudential flexibility, mm-hmm. uh, and and so yeah, so but I think the American way of doing it is a at the founding was a really good way to do it. We're grateful you've been able to join us today for this uh, discussion on Christian nationalism with Dr. Joe Rigney. Uh, also, Founders has a few things coming out uh, on the issue of Christian nationalism. Dr. Tom Askell has recently written a little pamphlet, a little booklet on the perils and promises of Christian nationalism. That'll be coming out here in the next few uh, weeks, but you can pre-order that now for $2.99, or you can uh, donate a copy to be given away to an SBC attendee at the coming up Southern Baptist Convention in June next month. Also, I just want to remind you of the Founders National Conference that is coming up January 18th through the 20th, 2024. I'm going to have wonderful speakers, Tom Askell, Conrad Mbewey, Joel Beakey, Phil Johnson, Travis Allen. Uh, The the theme of the conference is Remembering Jesus Christ. It's going to be a wonderful time. It always is a wonderful time. Uh, And this year we have uh, Spanish translation and a Spanish live stream will be available for all of our attendees uh, who uh, speak Spanish or Spanish is their first language. Uh, So we want to make that available to all of our attendees and the people who are going to be live streaming it as well. So spread the word about that, that they can uh, take advantage of that opportunity. You know, one of the things that we see with um, the critics uh, from, you know, the evangelical conservative side who are critics of Christian nationalism things, um, they'll they'll often give... Um, in their criticisms, these dichotomies, you know, either you can have a Christian state or you can have Christian individuals or either you can have a Christian state or you can have Christian missions. Um, you know, I've read one article recently, you know, which is more 
um, grievous, a compromised nation or a compromised church. And so you have to pick one or the other. Uh, What do you think about those criticisms? Yeah, I, 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 that, that way of reasoning, I somebody needs to take a logic class for goodness sake. Like we gotta, you know, what do they teach them in these schools? It, um, it's, it's not true. It's, and I think that going back to those first principles and trying to figure out, okay, there are different institutions established by God. I'm not a strict sphere sovereignty guy, uh, in the sense of sometimes that even that gets applied well, but, but in general, sort of thinking in terms of the family as the basic unit of society. And then the church has a particular role as established by God and the state has a particular role established by God. And uh, I think those are, those are helpful, um, divisions and to think through what has been given to these and you should want faithfulness across the board and you shouldn't be mainly going, well, which is, you know, like compare, you know, which is a worse error? Um, it's like, that's not really the question. It's let's figure out what would faithfulness look like across the board and and aim for that in all of them. Let's have, well, we want faithful Christian families. We want faithful Christian churches and we want faithful Christian states. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, I think that's another dividing line in some of this discussion is, uh, and this is, this is again, living a little bit in the in Baptist context, um, and still having open questions, even to this, at this point about, about the baptism thing, uh, is, um, so corporate bodies, bodies of people are able to speak and act. And I think all Christians recognize this when it comes to the church and when it comes to families, but it also is true when it comes to nations and when it comes to states, they can speak and act. And that means they can speak and act about God. And I, and my, my contention is, um, they ought to say true things about him. They ought to acknowledge him. They ought to speak to him even then. And, and I think that, um, a consistent way, I think there would be a, a really consistent way for say Baptists, um, you know, uh, Baptists who are uncomfortable with this to say, we want, we want a state that acknowledges the Lordship of Jesus and then has wide toleration for religious stuff. In other words, you can have the, you can, you can ground your strong religious liberty protections in a formal acknowledgement of the living God. I think that would be a consistent mm. argument to be made that that's the best way to do it. I, I think there are ways that the state can still have laws that encourage and, and uh, discourage certain ac- actions. But if, if you didn't think that, ground those in an acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus, because that's the securest ground that you have. Like you, this is back to, to Tom's point about it's not whether, but which you're going to have a religious establishment. You're going to have some foundation upon which social order is based. And as Christians, we ought to want to, it to be the true one. Mm-hmm. And let's just start there. And then after that, then all of our debates are about that's a given. We want a Christian foundation. Now, given that, what are the prudential questions that we should consider in terms of particular laws or policies and things like that? You know, when I, uh, I don't know how many years ago, a few years ago, uh, started thinking about these things as you see the culture collapsing more and more, uh, the question that helped me frame some of my concerns that that I put to myself is if we had to recreate or create a nation today from the best of what we have in America, we couldn't, could we recreate America? I don't think we could. We just don't have it. We don't have the moral fiber. Mm -hmm. We don't have the God centeredness. We don't have that type of courage uh, and understanding anymore. And so given that, why not? And and you brought up Aaron Wren and we talk about that a lot. We were discussing it this morning, even uh, on the way over here. I, I've found great help with that paradigm as well. And so if, if you stretch it out beyond what he did, in the colonial era, there, there was a positive world for Christianity. And so this nation was birthed in that positive world. And the Great Awakening, I think, had a great uh, role to play 
in that. And here we are in the negative world. I grew up in, in the neutral world. And I remember saying this, you know, as a pastor, as a young pastor, look, we don't want any help from the state. Just get out of our way. Leave us alone. Deliver the mail. Protect the borders. And give us a seat at the table. Give us a seat yeah. at the table. Then, you know, we'll, the gospel will prevail. But I, I didn't realize that the table was built by Christianity and right. that now then it's the leftists and the pagans who have the table and they're trying to kill us because we just want to be able to get close to it. And, and they're not delivering the mail or protecting that's the right, That's right. We're not even getting what we wanted, you know. So I think the rules of engagement have to change for Christians to be faithful. You, you can't pretend that the world is the way that it was even 30 years ago, but certainly not 50 years ago after or the post-world, post-World War consensus that has overtaken us now. So that's, yeah. that's been helpful. I don't have all the answers, but, man, it's helped frame some of the questions and show the borders of where these debates need to happen. Mm-hmm. And what's been frustrating to me, I, I don't, the, the world, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. So when unbelievers, you know, castigate us with white Christian nationalism or, you know, white supremacy nationalism or however they're going to frame it, they're going to do that. But what's frustrating to me is to see Christians who um, engage in the debates without the kind of thoughtfulness that I think it warrants, mm-hmm. given the realities. This is where we are living right now. And you can't go back uh, 50 years ago and, and think, well, we did it then and we just need to do it now the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that calls for, and this, this answers a common objection, which is, hey, here we are in a negative world, and all of a sudden you guys want to talk about having a Christian nation. This is un- It's unrealistic. It's not this, you know, why are we devoting attention to it? But I think it's actually in a circumstance like this that it forces us to go, well, what, what do we want? Like, what would we aim at if God was gracious and the third great awakening happened? Mm-hmm. If a revival broke out, would we be ready to say, and one of the fruits of it will be, this is the sorts of social order we would want to encourage and so forth. And so getting back to first principles and having a vision for what kind of society from the family on up. And I think it's, it, it is a holistic picture because even as the, the wider culture disintegrates um, and, and that, that level goes wrong, there's still opportunities for us to live as faithful Christians mm-hmm. in our homes, in our churches, and to sort of build that Christian culture, you want to call it that, um, out of those in hopes that God will do what he's done in the past. Right. This, that this is not unprecedented to have a godless society sort of then collapse and then the Christians get left in charge. That's happened before, and I don't think it's unreasonable to think that it wouldn't happen again. And the, and the question is, will we be the kind of faithful, mature Christians who have thought through these things and know what, what the different institutions of society are for, what their boundaries are, what their limits are, um, what wise and what, what are wise? Can we, have we learned from Christendom 1.0 about if ever God were to give us Christendom 2.0? What, yeah. have, have we learned the lessons? Where did they fail? Let's try to do better next time. Um, those, that's why the questions are, are now not superfluous or, or uh, irrelevant, despite the fact that there's not any, this next election cycle is not going to be, hey, are we going to have a Christian polity? It's, yeah. That's not what we're faced with. But, but we ought to be building and sowing seeds of that longer term yeah. project. You know, twice now in this show, you have referenced a Christian culture in the home. Aren't you concerned that that would create nominalists of your children? Uh, there is no a way to avoid nominalism. <laughs> so, um, you know, I saw, some, I think somebody tweeted the other day, the nominal will always be with you. Um, <laughs> you know, sort of riffing, riffing on Jesus. And I think that's true. It's the question of whether they will be Christian nominalists or pagan nominalists. 
Mm-hmm. Um, nominalism is just a feature of life in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that means we just accept it and say, well, okay, so it, you know, any more than the fact that the poor will always be with us means that we don't do anything about poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. You, you act to remedy it. But, um, but I'm not worried. I actually think that nominalism, there's two ways to view nominalism. One way is, is this totally negative thing. The other way is it's kindling. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if you look at historically, um, the, the great awakenings, the revivals, the renewal movements have all emerged out of Christian cultures that had gone nominal, that had been unfaithful. And then God through his, his people, through ministers, through, through churches, through prayer movements, lit a spark, but there was, there was something to light, mm-hmm. meaning there was a, a recognition of God, even if it was a nominal recognition. Uh, there was a sense of sin that just needed to be pressed on, that needed to have pastors press at home. And so at some level, I actually think um, the problem of nominalism places the burden of Christian action or Christian uh, vibrancy where I think it ought to be, which is on churches. Yeah. If you're in a nominal Christian culture, right, where you have um, everybody believes in the good Lord and the good book, um, if you have that sort of thing, where does the, where's the burden? What's the thing? Who has the ball? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like the pastor does. Yeah. The pastor needs to preach, you know, um, a, a sermon that's going to cut to the quick. He needs to open up his Bible and he needs to let him have it. And knowing that some of that ground has already been tilled yeah. by, by the culture. I think this is actually something that Baptists sometimes fail to recognize honestly, is to what degree our modes of church and our polity and things like that are um, rooted in uh, cultural Christianity. Mm. Like that was the soil out of which Baptist, uh, you know, credo-Baptist movements were renewal movements within nominal Christian cultures um, that were seeking to say, hey, it matters that you actually believe this stuff and you don't just check the box because you were sprinkled as an infant. Um, You need to really own this. And, And in that sense, um, th- that you want that kind of thing, as opposed to sometimes th- the impression I get from some Baptists is they want to sort of repristinate sort of uh, the the social order of the first century, hmm. and and there's weird there's a weird biblicism, um, and I use that word I don't like using it too much as a criticism because I like the Bible, but there's <laughs> a way of trying to say that the new te- you know if if you're restricted in some ways to what the New Testament speaks to, then it means you're always trying to create the cultural conditions that the mm. new Testament was written in. And so you need a pagan country mm. and you need, um, and you need a Caesar. And mm. then, and then it's like, now we know what to do. Now we can like, be faithful. Now we can be faithful because it's just like the new Testament guys. And I just think that's not what God calls us to. We should look at the way they were faithful in their context. And then we should say, let's try to be faithful in ours. And we're not limited to leaving the contexts as they are. We can actually try to build something, um, building Christian culture. And so whether it's, you know, Presbyterians or Baptists are always going to face the nominalism problem. Um, and the answer to that is always going to be the same. It's going to be the preaching of the word, um, prayer, the Holy Spirit acting um, sovereignly by through the means that he's ordained. That's the answer to nominalism. But we shouldn't sweat its existence. Yeah, I, that is so well put. Man, there's so many... Uh roads that we could run down and uh, this has been a great conversation I, i'm thinking in one sense we've just had a, a, a classic example of this with the coronation of king charles i mean yeah. it, it it was filled with wonderful statements that mm-hmm. nobody who were saying them believes mm-hmm. but, but they came from somewhere you know, where did right. where did those rituals come from they came from a world in which there were people who believed it and so they instituted it so what's the opportunity? The opportunities for those of us who believe it, or in this case, those in England who believe it, to press it home, 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, man, I'm, we are, um, our eschatology leads us to hope and pray for uh, a great awakening, a great movement of God's spirit. We, we long for that. So we're revolutionaries in that sense. We're looking forward to the word of God doing its work. And I've talked for many, many years and even how to, to kind of lead founders is I want to leave some markers for my grandkids, you know, so if everything goes South, we all die in the gulag that there will be something to be uncovered that they can look at and say, Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There was a time and where did that come from? And they can use that to hopefully provoke them to go back to the word, to cry out to this God who gave up his son, the Lord Jesus for sinners and to seek repentance and faith and then live for him in the world that they will be in, in their Mm day. Yes. You know, the, the failure of uh, nominalism, if it is a failure, is not a failure of cultural Christianity. It's not a failure of a Christian state. It's the failure of the church that has not proclaimed the gospel appropri- appropriately and sufficiently in the context in which they are. Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, uh, Joe, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we appreciate your labors in this realm. Uh, you've given us a lot of food for thought, and these are important issues. They're not going away, and we're going to have to learn to think and debate uh, more carefully than we have uh, because this is where we are. This is where God's placed us, and there's no need for us to be pessimistic or defeated about it. Uh, we need to uh, look to the Word of God more critically, carefully than we ever have. Ask God to correct our thinking and to and empower us to stand firm in this day. And we appreciate your leadership and help with that. Yeah, thanks. thanks, guys. Appreciate you guys, too. Well, thank you for joining us today on The Sword and Trial, and we look forward to uh, seeing you again and having you join with us. If this has been a helpful conversation to you, would you do us a favor and just share it or subscribe to any of the platforms where you access uh, your favorite podcast? We'll see you next time. Why are we here? What is the most important thing in the world? One of our greatest problems is is forgetting. We, We forget what God has done for us. We forget what God has taught us. We forget things that we have experienced. If we don't pause, if we don't think deeply, if we aren't reminded again and again and again, we forget. It strikes me pretty significantly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Why in the world would Paul tell a pastor to remember Christ? Well, he's not going to forget that Jesus Christ lived and that Jesus Christ taught, but he's going to forget the significance of Christ. Christ is ultimately our mission. The church is the body of Christ. A church has to focus on the supremacy of Christ because that's why we are the church. Christ is supreme overall. The church's great mission is to preach Christ. We're there to win souls. advance Christ's kingdom. The problem with the world is not that they don't agree with me. The problem is that they don't bow the knee to Christ. So that's why we're going to gather, to specifically, explicitly focus on the supremacy of Christ. 
to do our best to remind each other of the centrality of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. So join us in Fort Myers, Florida, January 18th through 20th, 2024, as we focus on Jesus Christ. I hope to see you there.